Good morning again. Thanks for joining us here at Prairie View Christian Church. We appreciate you being here. So last Sunday we read Joshua 23, a speech that some call Joshua's last will and testament or his farewell address. As Joshua approaches the end of his life, now over 100 years old, he gives his fellow Israelites some parting words of wisdom. First, he reminds them of their complete, utter, and total dependence upon God. Second, he challenges them to respond appropriately to the grace God has shown them with faith and obedience. Third, he calls them to maintain their distinctiveness from the surrounding nations, namely in their worship of God and God alone. And fourth, he warns them about the severe consequences of falling away. These were important words for the Israelites to hear as they finally entered some form of rest in the promised land. And as we discussed last week, they're important words for Christians like us to hear as well, as we look forward to eternal rest. But today we finish the book of Joshua, reading chapter 24. And you might say that these are Joshua's final, final words. But the setting for this speech feels a bit more formal, a bit more sacred than the one we read last week. This is where Joshua issues the famous command that you may already be familiar with. Choose this day whom you will serve. Time and time again, God has been with the Israelites wherever they've gone. Now the question is, will the Israelites choose to remain with God after Joshua's gone? So open up to Joshua 24, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take one home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. I pray that as a season comes to an end and a new season begins with summer wrapping up and Labor Day coming and fall arriving. I pray that as the seasons change, as the world changes, as things go in all kinds of unpredictable directions, that our worship, our love, our obedience to you would remain the same because you remain the same. You do not change. You are not manipulated or Affected by things outside of you because you are holy and perfectly, utterly complete in and of yourself. You need nothing outside of you. And so the fact that we're here outside of you says something about your grace and your generosity and your kindness. And Lord, as people created in your image, I pray that we would give you the worship that you deserve today and every other day with our words, with our songs, with our prayers, with our actions with our thoughts, with our feelings, with our, with our lives. I pray that we would offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you. And that sitting here on a Sunday morning and singing and praying and giving offering and taking communion and even having conversations before and after the service and 
welcoming new people and catching up with old people. I pray that would all just be an act of worship in one way or another. So, Lord, help our lives be acts of worship to you. Help this morning be acts of worship to you. And I pray that as we sit here and listen to your word from Joshua 24, that we would listen in a way that is worshipful, knowing who you are and what you've done for us, seeing how even passages like this from the Old Testament point us ahead to Christ, who really is the center of all scripture, and he's the one who brings us together. So thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, as we begin the chapter, look for just a moment at Joshua 24, verses 1 through 13. And specifically, consider a few of the details of verses 1 and 2. First, you see that everyone is represented at this meeting. Elders, heads, judges, officers, they're all there. Second, there's significance to the place of Shechem. Abraham himself, the father of the entire nation, built his first altar of worship to the Lord right there in Shechem. Perhaps that altar was looming over Joshua's shoulders as he spoke, which would have added weight to his words. And third, look at who the Israelites have come to hear. They're not in Shechem to hear Joshua. They're in Shechem to hear God. When Joshua speaks, he speaks on God's behalf. And you know that when he starts with the phrase, thus says the Lord. So this is no impromptu run of the mill gathering just to shoot the breeze. The atmosphere makes it obvious that the meeting we read about today is important. If you look at the rest of the verses from there, the Lord, again speaking through Joshua, gives the Israelites a brief history lesson of all that he's done for them. He called them out of idolatry. He made them a great nation. He delivered them from Egyptian chains. He brought them across the Red Sea. He defeated their enemies. He gave them the promised land they now call home. In short, God has done everything for them. If not for God taking the gracious initiative to call a man named Abraham a long time ago, Israel, quite literally, would not exist. So with all of that in mind... What should Israel do in response? Verses 14 and 15. Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord... Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Choose this day whom you will serve. The Israelites certainly had no shortage of options. The so-called gods of the ancient world were plentiful. They could go back to the false gods they served a long time ago. They could take some of the new gods of the promised land's previous inhabitants for a spin. But Joshua, after 100 plus years of seeing God work in miraculous ways wherever he's gone, Joshua has made his choice. He and his household will serve the Lord. But what about the rest of the Israelites? Who will they choose this day? Verse 16. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. If you know your Old Testament history, verse 16 is a little bit amusing. Verse 17. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Simple enough, right? Seems like a no-brainer. Of course they're going to serve the Lord. After all that God has done for them, how could they possibly fear and serve anyone else? None of those other gods can hold a candle to the accomplishments of the one true God. The Lord's resume in verses 2 through 13 speaks for itself. It's an easy decision. So just like that, meeting adjourned, right? Joshua can head home, play shuffleboard for a little while, and die in peace. But is it really that simple? Is it really that simple? Weigh your options. Consider all that God has done. Compare his miraculous track record to the false god's non-existent track record. You can maybe draw up a chart of pros and cons. Make an education about an educated decision about who's best and then go with him. When you put it that way, choosing which god you serve doesn't sound much different from buying a car or mulling over a job opportunity or picking out a college. Is deciding to fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness really that simple? Can it be reduced to a merely intellectual exercise in a public forum? Joshua doesn't seem to think so. And that's why the meeting continues. Verse 19. But Joshua said to the people... You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. 
If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Now, why is Joshua so pessimistic? Is it because he's old and cranky? Or is it something more? Remember what we said last week. Joshua has seen some terrible things in his 100 plus years of life. Joshua was there when the Israelites turned against God on a dime in the wilderness. All it took was missing a meal. Joshua was there when the Israelites turned against God as soon as they were out of Moses' sight and worshipped a golden calf instead. Joshua was there when the Israelites turned against God by failing to trust him to defeat their enemies in the promised land. Joshua was there when Achan just couldn't help himself and turned against God's command to not take the plunder of Jericho for himself. Joshua has been there time and time and time again when Israel has shown this tendency to turn against God at worst or forget God at best. Joshua knows his people. To a degree, Joshua knows himself. And after all these years, he's learned that when it comes to faithfulness to God... Talk is cheap. But on top of Israel's sordid history of faithfulness to God, some additional warning flags have already started to emerge as they've settled down on the promised land. In Joshua chapter 13, verse 13, we read, Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites, But Geshur and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Something similar happens in chapter 15 and chapter 16 and chapter 17. To the point in chapter 18, verse 3, that Joshua, with an exasperated attitude, says, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. So why is Joshua so pessimistic about Israel's verbal commitment to the Lord to serve him in sincerity and faithfulness? Why isn't Joshua more optimistic about the Israelites actually doing what they say they're going to do and putting away false gods Once and for all. Joshua knows Israel's track record. Joshua has witnessed Israel's hesitant, inconsistent, half-hearted obedience firsthand. So you can't blame Joshua for doubting that this time will be any different. But we read in verse 21. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, 
You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Joshua said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it is heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a false witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So the Israelites insist. They are super serious about serving God now. So Joshua gives them one final chance to put away any false gods they may be hiding. And, you know, the fact that Joshua feels the need to say this right now to begin with tells us something about just how fickle the Israelites could be. Even as they stand at Shechem, making this covenant with their words, they may have a few idols in their purses. Maybe. Joshua calls them as witnesses against themselves. He writes down the words of their covenant to keep the covenant. And he even sets up another stone, maybe not far from Abraham's altar, reminding them of the commitment that they've made. And at this point, what else can Joshua do? Israel has made their choice. And only time will tell If they can prove the unconvinced Joshua wrong. So Joshua dies. He's buried in the promised land along with the bones of Joseph, which tells us that Israel is not going anywhere anytime soon. And, you know, for a long time, specifically all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord had done for Israel, for a while the people do quite well. They keep their word to serve the Lord. Good for them, right? But what about the future? What about down the road? If you're familiar with the biblical story, you know it's not good. In Judges chapter 1, immediately on the heels of Joshua's death, Israel continues the conquest of the land they haven't taken yet. But the same old red flags that we saw in Joshua 13, 15, 16, and 17 pop up again. They don't drive out the inhabitants as God commanded. And unsurprisingly, that leads to Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 10. 
And all that generation, referring to Joshua's generation, those who immediately followed him, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Before we go on, what do you mean they didn't know what God had done for them? This generation was so faithful. Surely they would have told their children and their grandchildren. How could they not know? Well, apparently they didn't tell them. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Sadly, it appears that old Cranky, pessimistic Joshua was right. And as you read on, it only gets worse. It's almost like Israel has some sort of bug. There's some kind of internal defect that prevents them from fearing and serving the Lord, no matter what they say, no matter how hard they try, and no matter how many times they verbally recommit themselves to God. They have the history. They have the words. They have the altars. They have the endless sources of knowledge educating them about who God is and what God has done, and yet... Over and over and over again, they just keep drifting away. Why? Well, I think Joshua knew at least part of the answer. If you look back at Joshua 24, verse 23, we read there. Joshua said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. To some degree, Joshua knew that the problem wasn't just the Israelites' heads. The problem was the Israelites' hearts. It wasn't just an issue of education. Knowing all the right things about God in your head. It was an issue of motivation. Loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So until the heart problem is addressed, which scripture identifies as sin... The same thing will just keep happening. But thankfully, God has a plan to truly, finally, once and for all, address the problem of sin, not just for Israel, but for all humanity. God doesn't just give up on sinful Israel. He doesn't just cast aside sinful humanity. There's good news. 
Jeremiah 31 verse 33 says, God speaking. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. One day. In God's good timing, a new covenant would come. God himself would enable sinners to be faithful to him, not just with our words, but with our lives. God himself would empower sinners to know and worship and obey him, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. And the one who brings that covenant, the one who fulfills it himself, is God's son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb, lives in a perfect obedience to God, unlike anyone else before him. And is thus qualified to die for the sins of others on a cross. He rises from the dead. Gives eternal life to all who believe in him. And promises to return in power and glory bringing heaven with him. Sounds like a no brainer, doesn't it? What a resume. Sign me up. Why would you believe in and serve anyone else? But like it was for the Israelites, choosing to serve Jesus might not be that simple. It's not just a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. We have the same bug living within us. We have the same defect that Israel had. And that's sin. So if we think that we can believe in and follow Jesus purely by our own knowledge, our own wisdom, our own blood, sweat, tears, and wills, we may appear to be pretty good at it for a time. But eventually we will drift away. It's not enough to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in our heads. We must incline our hearts to him. And that's not something that we can do on our own. But thankfully, God has that covered, too. In John chapter 16, Jesus promises his disciples, who, if you read the Gospels, were themselves often hesitant, inconsistent, and half-hearted in their faith and obedience. 
He promises them that the Holy Spirit will come. And when he does, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, the Holy Spirit will do what we can't do on our own. The Holy Spirit has the power to incline sinful hearts like ours to the Lord. And at the end of the day, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who hasn't just been convinced in their heads of the facts and figures of the Christian faith. But someone whose heart has been inclined to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Seen in faith in obedience to the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. That's who we are in this church. So choose this day whom you will serve. It's a little more complicated than it sounds, isn't it? If you're not a believer in Jesus, I pray that you would put away the false gods of our world who can do nothing for you in eternity. They don't have to be in the form of an ancient religious statue. A false god can be anything you prioritize over the one true God. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has already begun inclining your heart to the Lord long before you ever got here today. And maybe that's the reason that you are here. To choose the Lord for the first time. Or maybe you're a believer in Jesus already. If so, thank God for that. It's worth remembering that you didn't get here just by examining the evidence, weighing the pros and cons, and making an informed decision. You got here through the gospel. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And if not for God's grace, you would not be where you are. The same way the Israelites would never have made it to the promised land. So if you're a believer in Christ already, thank God for his grace. And rejoice in the one you've chosen to serve. Or maybe you feel like you're somewhere in between. You know a lot about God in your head. You know the doctrines. You can sing the songs. You've read the Bible. You even drop a check in the box every once in a while. But if you have any doubt about whether or not your heart is truly inclined to the Lord, talk to us. Perhaps your heart is inclined to the Lord and you're struggling with doubt. Or going through the inevitable ups and downs that every believer experiences. And you need to be reassured and encouraged. We would love to do that for you. Or maybe you really do need to re-examine whether or not you believe. Either way, don't leave here unsure of who your heart belongs to. At the end of the day... Really, this day and every other day, we all must choose whom we will serve. And by God's grace, may we choose well. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. And Lord, more than anything, as we close this sermon, I think the best thing we can pray is just that you would incline our hearts to you. Again, left to ourselves, we are like Adam and Eve. We disobey you. We accuse you. We hide from you. We flee from you. We don't deserve to be in your presence. But like Adam and Eve, you've promised us that there is a way of salvation. There is a way of reconciliation to you. There's a way to repair and restore the relationship that we were meant to have with you. The harmony that we were meant to have with you. And Lord, that way, that repair, that restoration, that reconciliation only comes through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, incline our hearts to serve you. Incline our hearts to love your son. Incline our hearts to worship you and fear you and serve you in sincerity and in faithfulness. That we can reach rest the rest that only you can provide in eternity. So, Lord, again, by your Spirit's power, by the power of your word, fulfill your promises and incline sinful hearts like ours to you. Whether it's for the very first time, once and for all, or whether it's just that daily decision to wake up and choose you, to serve you, to follow you, to incline our hearts to you, rather than all the other gods that our world holds out to us. Lord, help us choose to serve you this day and every other day by your grace. We love you, we honor you, we worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.